1959, John Murray, a Scottish systematic theologian at Westminster Theological Seminary, published the first volume of his commentary on the Book of Romans, one that John Piper would later call the most beautiful commentary ever written. In the more than 60 years since it first appeared, Murray's commentary has changed the way scores of pastors and teachers read and teach the Bible, helping to draw many readers and congregations into deeper communion with their Savior. Now, Westminster Seminary Press has reprinted John Murray's commentary on Romans in a beautiful new hardcover edition updated with a new introduction by Sinclair Ferguson. I'm your host, John Curry, professor of pastoral theology at Westminster. In this podcast, we'll revisit the classic commentary with some of the pastors and teachers it has influenced the most. Along the way, we'll explore how Paul's letter to the Romans and John Murray's commentary on that letter help us to understand, teach, and preach Romans in the present day. I hope you'll join me as we explore together the Epistle to the Romans. So Dave, Scott alluded to Romans chapter 8 and the doctrine of adoption and assurance and how those things are related. Mm -hmm. Could you walk us through Romans 8 and particularly how it contributes to the doctrine of adoption? Well, I would say Romans 8 is the kind of the culmination of that whole section from 6 to 8 in which Paul really profiles for us the glories of the gospel. But interestingly in Romans 8, when he does so, he lays before us in the second half of Romans 8 the whole construct from creation unto consummation, from the very beginning to the end of time. And at the very center of it, He describes that the riches of the gospel in Christ the Son of God find their most glorious manifestation in our adoption. Mm. And he uses this motif of adoption, and and, and Murray is really helpful on this, in which he describes how adoption in Romans 8, 15 to 17, and then Romans 8, 23, which uses the term huiathesia, adoption again, um, that he sees this as both already We are fully adopted already, but at the resurrection of the body, that full transformation, that our complete transformation is the realization of our sonship, of being adopted sons of God. And that that is another manifestation of our union. And it is so important for Paul that he will actually frame God's dealings with the whole of creation in view of that final day when we're resurrected and our adoption reaches its fulfillment as the day when everything is actually restored and renewed. Mm. And so there's a great interplay in Paul's theology of the first and last Adam here with creation and us being made in the image of God and as those who are children of Adam who by grace through faith become children of God through the last Adam. And that motif actually is for Paul wonderfully summarized and as Murray will say, the great zenith of our benefits in union with Christ is adoption. Wow, wow, what a great exposition of that. Um, Scott, we're, we're, as we're making our way through the book of Romans, uh, we come to Romans 9, obviously, and that, the Romans 9 for folks in the Reformed tradition can kind of be assumed. Uh, we're, we're used to it, we stand in wonder of it, uh, 
but it tells us about the great doctrine of election and predestination. Can we just assume it? Does Romans 9 remain uh, an important passage for us to be conversant in, to return to? And maybe talk to us a little bit about how John Murray handles it. Murray has a, uh, just a tremendous exposition of this uh, chapter in his commentary. Um, he starts out by saying, uh, Union with Christ is the orbit within which Paul's emotions move and the spring from which they proceed because Paul begins by saying, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my mm -hmm. kinsmen. Mm -hmm. And Murray goes on to, to, to say, isn't, isn't Paul here the picture of Christ who was accursed for the sake of his own? Mm -hmm. and, and Paul is, is, is giving that posture initially, as Murray points out, to show that what he's about to deal with gives him anguish with respect to his kinsmen, according to the flesh. Mm -hmm. But then he goes on to say, and I, I don't think we can just uh, assume this as, as Reformed people, because there's kind of a constant uh, attack, maybe too strong, but a constant nudging away, inching away of the full orb sovereignty of God as it's presented to us in Romans 9 uh, by, by various uh, people and scholars who want to affirm some kind of sovereignty, but not the absolute <clears throat> sovereignty that Paul gives us here. And Murray just has a, a fantastic way of bringing all this out. He, he, he recognizes that Paul is using uh, Old Testament language, Jacob and Esau, that actually point to the nation. So you've got the mm -hmm. Edomites. Uh, but he also says we can't then assume um, that what Paul has in mind here when he's talking about God's election is the election of ethnic Israel. And the reason you can't assume that, Murray tells us, I think, and he goes into detail on this, because one of the, one of the most um, probably anguishing statements for the apostle is in verse 6. Mm -hmm. You can almost see him writing it with tears, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, mm -hmm. and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. And you can, you can sense the Apostle Paul wishing he didn't have to write that, but he has to write it. And so Murray goes on to say, this shows that Paul's concern is not for the ethnic nation. It's for the Lord's own people. And how it is the Lord's people are chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Mm -hmm. And so he, Paul has this language. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Murray shows that what Paul's doing here is anticipating the objections that would come, and those anticipations of objections only go to support the very thing that Paul himself is saying. In other words, if he were not saying what we think he's saying, these objections wouldn't be relevant. But they are relevant. So it's not fair, God. Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Um, quoting there from Exodus, when, when Moses says to the Lord, show me your glory, and, and the Lord comes to, to, to say to, um, to Moses what Martin Luther called the greatest sermon ever preached, uh, the Lord, the Lord, slow to anger. And, and, he, and he says to Moses, uh, you can only see my back. Don't, don't think, Moses, that you have the ability to really peer into my glory because it would destroy you. And, and the structure of what 
Paul gives us here from Moses, I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's the same structure grammatically of I am who I am. Mm. In other words, God is saying what you need to recognize and realize here is I do what pleases me because I am God and you're not. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. What Paul's doing here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's able to dive into eternity in the way that God has revealed himself in his character in the Old Testament and say, this has deep implications for why you are now united to Christ. And it has to do with God's compassion on you. Verse 16, so then it, not they, it, what? Salvation, compassion, God's mercy, depends not on human will mm -hmm. or exertion. So if we, take, if we take the other Christian option um, that's, that's available to us in, in, in current context in the history of the church, uh, an Arminian or what we sometimes might call a Molinist option if we, if we use the Catholic uh, Molina, uh, that, that option says that God's election depends on human will. Mm -hmm. And it's a very ingenious, articulate, even though errant, and wholly wrong way to understand what God is doing in eternity, never resonating with anything mm -hmm. that Paul says, but simply presupposing that there's autonomous will, and therefore we have to interpret it this way. Paul says as clearly as it could be said under the inspiration of the Spirit, it simply does not depend on human will. It simply does not depend on human exertion. It depends on God who has mercy. And then, and then Murray has an excellent way of showing how we think, how we ought to think about the fact that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And he actually hearkens back to Romans 1. God gives Pharaoh over to the devices of his own heart in such a way that his heart will inevitably be more hardened. What is that? That's Romans 1. You want sin? I'll give you sin and more sin. So Murray's point is God is not creating something new in Pharaoh by hardening his heart. God is lifting the restraints of the already hard-hearted Pharaoh to make that heart harder in Pharaoh. Mm. Mm. And he has this wonderful way of explaining these kinds of things. And then, you know, that, that final question, uh, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will, is answered with a question. See, so that's the question. Well, if God determined, then not my fault, his fault. Paul's answer to the question is a question, who are you to answer back to God? And again, Murray has a wonderful way of showing how this, Paul's notion of God being the creator, the sovereign creator, and the one, therefore, who alone has the right to do with his creation, what he wants to do, mm -hmm. how that goes all the way back to the Old Testament. The Jews should have understood it. Yeah. We should understand it. The point is, the question is meant to bring us to what it brought Job to. It's time to put your hand over your mouth and to be mm -hmm. quiet because God is God and you're not. Yeah. And that's, and see, some people would say here, well, God, you know, he did, you know, the question isn't answered. Well, the question is answered, but it's answered with a question. And the question, to put it sort of bluntly, is who do you think you are? Mm -hmm. you, you don't, you need to realize who you are in light of who God is and what he's done. Mm -hmm. And all of that is Paul's way of fleshing out the origination of what union with Christ is. We are chosen, not just chosen, in Christ, in Christ before the foundation of the mm -hmm. world. 
Murray's, Murray's uh, comment, chapter nine, I haven't, I haven't read any better yeah. on that chapter. He's done such a nice job of showing us not just what he does with Romans nine, but how he addresses Romans nine with a view to the whole book yeah. and where he's, he's allowing the book to interpret itself. And my mind goes to what he then does with chapter 10, verse one, where Paul's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they might be saved. And Murray pushes back, perhaps we could say against kind of a hyper-Calvinism right. when he says it transgresses the bounds of the divine prerogative when we allow the doctrine of election to inculcate either despair or detachment and when we're concerned about the eternal souls of men. So here's Murray yeah. bringing the whole council together around that, that great doctrine. Exactly. Yeah. And isn't it fascinating that Paul begins his discussion with anguish in his heart and a wish that he be accursed. He yeah. ends the discussion with my heart's desire and prayer to God for them mm -hmm. is that they may be. I mean, that is biblical yeah. theology yeah. that understands the reality both of God's sovereign purposes and of our responsibility yeah. in light of those purposes. As, as we're moving our way through the book, let's loop back and, and think about uh, the major theme that runs all the way through the book of Romans. <clears throat> let's talk about justification by faith. And I'd like to open it up to, Mark, let's start with you, but open it up to all of us. And uh, just to ask the question, uh, what does Romans tell us about justification by faith? It's central. What does it mean for Paul's theology? Mm. And then maybe we could tease out a little bit, what are some of the ditches that people fall into um, when we're discussing the, or thinking about the doctrine of justification by faith. Mark, want to start? My response might be a little unconventional um, in as much as I think one of the, the key things we have learned about reading Paul in recent years particularly is the importance of doing hermeneutical justice to what's called the Pauline letter collection. Uh, we don't have a free-floating manuscript called Paul's letter to the Romans. The earliest manuscripts we have are part of a Pauline letter collection, which circulated as a collection to the churches. In fact, there's evidence that it originally circulated as a four-book collection, and then as Paul's ministry continued and he wrote more epistles, they were added to a growing Pauline letter collection. Why that's important is that Romans is always the first book in the Pauline letter collection, mm. which is to say it seems to function hermeneutically as a portal into Paul's, into Paul's teaching. So here, here he is on a missionary journey, and he is, he, is, he is desirous to get to Rome. He really wants to get to Rome. Hasn't been there yet. There's already widespread misunderstanding of Paul's gospel. He's accused of this and accused of that. You're anti-Jew because of how he goes after Judaizers. Um, you, you threaten God's justice. Talk about Romans 9. Those are two concerns that combine to give us Romans 9. There is distortion of his doctrine of justification, distortion of his, of his understanding of Jew-Gentile relations. He sends Romans, um, and the collect, as, as it functions within the collection, it provides this wonderful service. It means that the more comprehensive terrain covered by Romans, theologically, by Paul, will make sure we don't hear Galatians wrong. If we only have Galatians and we think we can construct our doctrine of justification on Galatians terms only, we will have a distorted understanding of justification because we will think it is the one, one and single most important thing in the whole gospel. It swallows everything around it. All there is is justification. But that's a pastorally driven letter. It's prompted by pastoral needs. Mm -hmm. Colossians accents a different point of the truth to deal with a very different pastoral need that Paul addresses there. If you don't, if you have only these 
pastorally prompted epistles. You could come away with truth, but with a distorted way of understanding how the truths relate. Romans functions as a way into the Pauline body as a whole. And we encounter justification by faith alone, but we also encounter union with Christ, adoption, sanctification, definitive and progressive, uh, predestination to eternal life, the urgency of communal life and Christian love for the brethren, the reality of our encounter with the living God, whether we are believer or unbeliever, by virtue of being made in his image. Romans gives us a protective framework for the Pauline letter collection as a whole. And what we learn from that framework is justification by faith on the grounds of the imputed righteousness of Christ is desperately important. Mm. There is no gospel without it, Mm. while we also say the gospel is more than Mm. justification. It is certainly never less than that. Mm. Romans helps us understand how to say that properly and then do justice to this the notes sounded so beautifully and compellingly by Galatians over here, Ephesians over here, Colossians over here. And that's an extraordinary service in God's providence mm-hmm. that Romans serves for the yeah. church's reading of Paul. Yeah, thank you for that. Mm-hmm. What are some of the ditches that we fall into with justification by faith? Well, certainly we've talked about one already in our last ap- episode about antinomianism. So if I'm forgiven and my guilt is completely covered, then maybe I should just go and live like the devil. Well, we've already talked about Romans 6 as well, because Paul is wanting us not to misunderstand the truths of the gospel. And I think it's interesting too, isn't it, that the the true understanding of justification might tempt us to antinomianism. And so Paul is wanting us to understand, yes, I realize why your mind and heart might go there. But you get the whole Christ, and he has actually created or established that decisive breach with the power of sin, and you are united to him who is the Holy Son of God. I might also, just in terms of that broader question of justification, one of the themes that we talked about in the last episode as well, where Scott led us through Romans 1, 18 and following, about the unfurling of the wrath of God. It leads to this crisis on the stage of history is how is God ever going to forgive anybody and still be a just God? And in Romans 3, Paul talks about how God is both just and justifier of the wicked in and through his son, Jesus Christ. And so one of the ways I think we would misunderstand justification would actually be to separate it out as a benefit that I'm going to hold on to and ignore the whole Christ. Mm -hmm. And that's a risk that I see is not just a potential risk. It is everywhere. Mm. Interesting. Yeah, you know, I was... um, I was raised Roman Catholic, and so so much of this resonates in my own in my own experience. I mean, I was young and youngish, but still, I had to go to Catholic school. I had to go to mass multiple times a week, and it was you know it was drilled into me. And um, what what you would hear uh, in a Roman Catholic context is that this is a legal fiction. Unless mm-hmm. it's infused, it cannot right. be a reality. Um, that that just goes back. How many times must we say this? It goes back to you are united to Christ. If you're united to Christ, his righteousness is yours by virtue of imputation, not by virtue of infusion. Infusion would be lesser because it wouldn't be Christ. When we have Christ, we have more than. Um, and, and that's what the Roman Catholic 
system won't allow for. I mean, there are a lot of things they won't allow for. This is just one of them. So I think um, helping people again understand the, the, the reality of union with Christ who has accomplished redemption perfectly, there's nothing else that we would need. We don't, infusion, that's, that's so little compared to what we have when we're united to Christ. That's, that's, a, that's a pitfall we don't even want to get to. And isn't it true that if it weren't the case that union with Christ is the context for our justification, justification would be a legal fiction. It would be be a statement contrary to fact. God would be calling us righteous when we are not. Mm -hmm. And so so if you see justification as causing union with Christ, for example, Mm -hmm. union with Christ is just one of the benefits of justification, uh, we're in really dangerous territory. Now we have, in fact, created a legal fiction possibility. Exactly. And a fiction among other benefits, I might add, as well. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. 